This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. You're listening to the full episode of Unexpected Agricultures with Viola June Johnson. Greetings, everyone. This is Alexa, and welcome to the very first episode of the show. I couldn't be more delighted to have you here and for us to be exploring the many life worlds of our planet together. Over the next 10 episodes, we're going to be speaking with ecologists, lawyers, technologists, artists, and a whole host of practitioners who have learned to get really, really close with the non-human world around them. Through them, we're going to learn what nature needs from us to thrive and regenerate and how we can begin to develop those skills ourselves. As you'll see, each of our guests is going to reveal extraordinary lessons that we can learn from other species and how we're all the better off when we're able to experience the world as one that is shared with other life. We're going to kick off the show by getting our feet down in the soil to talk about farming and agriculture. This is because farmers and those who work the land are very often the people whose entire days are spent immersed in the life worlds of the land, in the delicate stalks of green, the humming of pollinators, the pungent smells of cardamom or vanilla or creole maize, the beating of bird feather, and the crunch of parched soil underfoot. Their very survival depends on them seeing and interpreting the world around them through all of these other eyes. I personally have immense respect for farmers. I grew up spending a lot of time on farms, and my relationship to food has been defined by traveling all around North and South America, spending time in the fields, trying to understand just where our food comes from, and the astounding care and energy it takes to grow even the humblest sprout. I don't have to tell you here how destructive many of our current agricultural practices are to both the planet and to human health. Today, we're going to look at approaches that can help steer our global food system in a different direction. Lila June Johnston is an indigenous public speaker, artist, poet, scholar, and community organizer of Diné, Cheyenne, and European lineages. Lila studied human ecology at Stanford and is currently writing her PhD on indigenous food systems revitalization. In our conversation, she describes millennia-old methods of agriculture that most people never even know existed. These are massive landscape-scale farms, ingeniously designed by human hands to harness nature's flows, ranging from expansive clam gardens and kelp forests in the Pacific Northwest to the American grasslands. You'll hear from Lila how the social and governance systems needed to cultivate these hyperabundant landscapes require a completely different human mind, one that is embedded in the life world of the land and in the sensuality of natural forces. We'll contrast this to today's hyper-fragmented agricultural landscape and ask how we could begin to restore our relationship to farming and to food. Farming, agriculture, and eating are some of the most direct acts that you can practice day-to-day in caring for the earth, because nowhere else is our dependence on nature so embodied, so visceral, and so raw. The Japanese farmer and philosopher Fukuoka once said that the ultimate goal of farming is not the growing of crops, but the cultivation and perfection of human beings. I would add to that, very much inspired by what our guests share today, that the goal of farming is also for humans to learn how to become a reciprocal species, one that supports and feeds countless non-human lives through our acts of farming and growing and feeding. As this is our first time together, I want to point you towards the Life Worlds website, where I will be compiling pages of resources and links on all of the subjects that we discuss here. For this episode, there will be pages on farming and food and agriculture. Now, without further ado, here's Lila June Johnson. 
So hi, Lila. Welcome to Life Worlds. I'm really excited to get into the subject of indigenous food systems with you today. And before we begin, I would love to give you a chance just to introduce yourself before I launch into questions and content and things like that. Sure. Yeah, everyone. Greetings, everyone. Lila June. My name is Lila June. I'm from the Nanishtajitachitni clan of the Dene Nation. We are indigenous to what is now called uh, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, and Utah. My father's mother's of the Cheyenne, Southern Cheyenne clan, um, from Anadarko, Oklahoma. My maternal grandfather is the Salt clan of the Dene. My father's fathers of the European clans. Uh, but my first clan, the Nanishtajitachitni, I get that from my mother. We're a matrilineal society. Um, and Taos, New Mexico, I'm from Taos, New Mexico, originally. That's where I grew up. Uh, but I currently live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And yeah, I'm a musician, a um, PhD student or candidate at this point, um, and um, public speaker and all kinds of random stuff. But really, I just want to help. Thank you so much for your introduction. I, I took a listen to your podcast that you just launched um, as well before tuning in. And my own introduction feels so kind of woefully inadequate when it's just like, I'm Alexa Furmanish, you know, and and. I don't know if we'll get into it in this conversation, but I really appreciated the the piece and the writing that you've done around indigenous roots and that you went to a mountain in Switzerland, which is my homeland. And I'm actually doing a lot of research these days on my ancient peoples and, you know, pre-witchcraft trials and um, pre-Christianity, who were the people of my land and what were their traditions and who are their gods. And that's a really fruitful exercise that I'm just starting. And so... I hope that in a year or two, I'll be able to have some form of introducing myself that feels more more rooted in, in tradition and ancestry. But for now, Alexa, absolute pleasure to have you here. <laughs> um, so I took a look at your um, your profile before we chatted, and I saw that you're uh, 150 pages down in a 100-page dissertation process. So first of all, courage, that is a marathon, and thank you for making the time to be here. And I really hope that because our conversation is going to center a lot on what your dissertation is about, I truly hope that something that you say in this conversation can be enlightening to yourself, you know, as you speak about things and can help inform uh, your work and what you're and what you're currently writing about. So, so I, I set that intention for our conversation. Thank you. To to set the scene to set the scene a little bit. Um, if I understand correctly, your current kind of focus of work is on these indigenous food systems, and as a result of that also hopefully their revitalization. And I watched this presentation that you gave where you traveled, you know, you, you took you took the viewers from South America and Bolivia to Southern Australia to the American grasslands, uh, exemplifying a lot of the techniques used in those different places. And as you were speaking, my mind was firing in all these directions. Like there's so much to unpack in what you shared. Mm -hmm. And before asking you to get into a few examples that just helps to color like the abstract or like, okay, well, what is an indigenous food system? Yeah, yeah. What you're illuminating, uh, right, is that over thousands and thousands of years, our ancestors and indigenous peoples had these landscape scale, massive ways of modifying the landscape, but create, creating niches for other species, adding to biodiversity, funneling like the natural flows and rhythms of the land into food production and sustenance, but not just for ourselves, but for many other species. And so we kind of move through the lands, other species move with us, and we were in this really symbiotic relationship, um, which is obviously a massive contrast to our current food system, right? Um, and so... Maybe to begin, make that come alive for us. And, you know, what are some even maybe current research examples that you're digging into that are really alive for you and exciting? Yeah. Um, first of all, it's a great description. Um, maybe you should finish my dissertation for me. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, 
Yeah. So um, also, I wanted to make a quick note that, you know, the the reason why you can't introduce yourself, perhaps in your traditional manner, you know, we should never feel shame about that. Or we should never feel because that was systematically taken from us, you know, as as indigenous European peoples. And yes, we do have the power to reclaim it and recover it and excavate it. And we shouldn't feel bad about not being able to yet. Um, so there's that. Um, so to so get into what you're talking about, like these indigenous food systems, um, you know, I'm from the Diné Nation. And I'm, I've been raised the very pro-indigenous lens since I was born by my parents. And even to me, this stuff was new uh, information. So for example, uh, the idea that native people were not primitive running around eating hand to mouth trying to find a berry to eat or a deer to hunt but that these were actually uh, architects of abundance these were people who designed like you said entire landscapes into being incredibly like gardens of eden uh, augmenting the natural food bearing capacity of the land um, and namely not just for themselves but to benefit other species as well. That's a key difference between indigenous food systems and say the American food system, which is very human centric. But these food systems were designed to help all things thrive, which is what makes them so kind of noble and exciting and interesting. Um, but um, so for example, you know, we know in the Chesapeake Bay, looking at archaeological evidence that people's um, harvested oysters out of the Chesapeake Bay for at least 6,000 years and consistently, and that these oysters actually grew in size um, over that span of time. So in the past five, uh, 400 years, um, under American management, this oyster fishery has completely collapsed and you'd be very lucky to find an oyster in the Chesapeake Bay. So it's not a given that these things just run on their own. They take management, they take care. So uh, the Algonquin and the present day, the ancestors of the pres present day Piscataway peoples were taking care of that. Uh, another example is the clam gardens in the Pacific Northwest, where we have coastal Salish peoples creating these really sweet intertidal rock walls that when the tide comes up and then it recedes, these walls catch all this sediment and water behind, creating these cool, um, stiller waters that clams love to 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 live in. So uh, one study found in Quadra Island, which is a massive island in the Pacific Northwest, uh, that 35% of the coastline had these remnant intertidal rock walls that humans created to augment clam habitat. Um, and the these were dated to be at least 6,000 years old. So these are really ancient systems. That's a key feature of them. You look at the Great Plains and, you know, you think about how, you know, there was these grasslands uh, and the grassland habitat is one of America's most tragic, you know, endangered habitats today. There's huge efforts and organizations and 501c3s dedicated to protecting the American grassland. Well, the American grassland was an, a human creation through the use of fire, actually, through the constant uh, cool burns, we call them, you know, they're not scary burns, but they're cool burns. Native peoples would burn dozens of acres at a time to actually recycle the nutrients to suppress the shrubs and the trees that would overtake grasslands if you let it to its own devices. And that these grasslands actually supported a host of other species like buffalo, elk, deer, antelope, you name it, sheep, different species of sheep, horses. Um, and so, that's a whole other topic that my other friend did her dissertation on is that we actually did have horses here before Columbus and they did not die in the ice age, but whole other story. So anyways, these, these grasslands were um, anthropogenic in nature, meaning they were, they were human made. So for instance, the Miami nation of the um, Ohio river Valley, they have a lunar calendar and their September moon is called the grass burning moon because that's how regularly they would burn the grasses. Um, and they have beautiful poetic, you know, t t discussions about how the fire actually brings life to the land. Um, there's a fascinating book called Forgotten Fires, actually published in 1908, but they kind of republished it, just giving a state by state 
run through of all the ways indigenous peoples used fire as a management tool to manage this entire continent, literally every corner of this continent. Um, and this was done to transform the dead plant tissues into ash, which contains bioavailable phosphorus, nitrogen, potassium to put into the soil. It also brings in charcoal, which creates habitat for microbial organisms in the soil. Um, and you're actually injecting all this life into the soil system by burning it, ironically. And from in the wake of those uh, burns comes nutrient-dense grasslands. So maybe three weeks, even four weeks later, you'll see these beautiful green nutrient-dense grasses pop up and that attracts the buffalo. So we've been saying, you know, Native people have often been positioned as we were following the buffalo, right? We're always following the buffalo. No, in actuality, the buffalo followed our fire. We created buffalo habitat with our own hands. And if it wasn't for us, as we're seeing today, the buffalo habitat is collapsing into shrubland and um, messic forest. So um, those are just a few examples. You know, my dissertation is broken up into earth, fire, and water. You know, the water being all the cool fisheries, you know, the Shumash, the Shumash peoples of present day Malibu oversaw um, uh, shellfish fishery for 12,000 years there. They were hunting otters, I think, for 6,000 years straight there um, and, and on and on and on, you know, just the a huge wealth and diversity of foods that the Channel Islands once provided that are now almost, you know, extinct. So. Um, and then the earth, of course, looks at, you know, indigenous soil management, which is really germane to the whole regenerative agriculture movement where they talk about, oh, we got to rehabilitate the soil. And it's like, yes. And we've already been doing that for tens of thousands of years. And if you would let Native people lead in their own homelands, we could we could do that in a way that not only heals the soil, but heals history and the dispossession of Native peoples of their lands. Um, so that's the earth. And then the fire is, of course, all the ways fire was used. And then the final, final chapter will be air in which I will just, to me, the air just symbolizes the knowledge, you know, the, um, the, the stories, the, the ethics, you know, it's invisible, but it drives everything. And so I'll be interviewing elders for that chapter of, you know, what, what was the value system, the, 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 the principles and the assumptions that drove these systems because I'm finding these were actually more important than the system itself. You know, the system was just a manifestation of something deeper, which was values, ethics, and principles, and goals, and so on. So that's sort of the background on that research. That's absolutely something that uh, we're going to get into near the end of the call, is what kinds of civics and governance systems actually uphold all this, and what is the role of ceremony, language, etc., because it's not spoken about in like the very um, valuable, but I think still incomplete kind of region ag movement that that we see today. Um, the um, there is this this uh, phrase that you shared in your presentation that I've been thinking about for a long time, and there is there is like a, a sentence going around that really pisses me off, and that I've written about, which is you know, the earth doesn't need us, but we need the earth and the planet, and this weird kind of dualism. But I've often asked myself, like, well, if spirit or evolution allowed us to be here, then we must serve a role. Like every single species serves a role. Um, Every single species, whether you like them or not, they do. (laughs) And so I've, since I was a young child, like I've always felt like the role of the human being is to be able to be a witness to, to, to beauty, to the world. Like we really have an incredible ability to have song, dance, ritual, all of that. But then through that beauty to add to it, and I think that is our role as gardeners or as tenders to life because a few creatures do it, but not in the way that human beings have on a massive scale, which is modified entire global landscapes and create the capacity for more life to flourish there than would have been possible without us. And so this message, I think, is is incredibly redeeming at a time where everyone's hating on themselves and hating on human beings and we think that we're a cancer and a scum of the earth. But look back in time and we're not, right? And and we have had these capacities. And so maybe you could speak to this role of the human being as a keystone species. And that term is technical and it simply means, as you know, that um, we kind of, our presence modifies an entire trophic um, web of relations around us in very uh, potent ways, kind of like big predators or um, megafauna and, and, and creatures like that. 
So what does it mean for you when you speak about the human being as this Keystone species? And in particular, what couldn't thrive without us or what has thrived because of human tending? Right. And I'm definitely in my early phases of exploring this concept, even though I've been looking at it pretty intensely for a few years. But, um, you know, as you said, a keystone species is like a beaver, for example. They create this dam, which creates this whole habitat, which supports all these other species. So they're like a linchpin species or a species that if you were to remove them from the system, much of that system would collapse. Um, and so it's very exciting to remember that we as humans can be that. And as we know, we also cannot be that. Um, and, and that's where the values and principles come in. Those are, that's the rudder. You know, the, the value system of a culture is the rudder that steers that ship to either being a keystone species or being an extractive species. So we have the potential to do both, clearly. It's been proven. Um, and so I think what's exciting is to remember, like you said, we can be a keystone species. We are capable of this. So, for example, the Heltzuk, uh nation of Bella Bella, British Columbia, they hand plant kelp forests in the coastline, as well as dip hemlock boughs into the waters when the herring fish comes to lay its eggs. And the herring fish is this incredibly important species for coastal Salish nations that provide so much calories, like a huge caloric boost every February when it lays millions of bajillions of eggs over the entire coastline. So by these humans creating kelp forests, they are increasing the surface area that the herring can lay its eggs on. So this is just one example of with their bare hands, they are augmenting habitat for a species that then uh, feeds not only humans, but feeds salmon and up the food chain to orcas and wolves. The wolves can be found and the bears can be found eating the the, the eggs off the coastline and stuff and, and up to the eagles, etc. So um, and of course, there's still eggs left over to hatch, very important, right? And create the next generation of herring. So the herring is this incredibly giving being. Um, and then the, the Western commercial fishers, um, they'll come in and they catch a bunch of herring, slice them open, get the eggs and dump the dead fish into the water. So it's such a clear example of our capacity to be either regenerative and a keystone species where we're actually supporting the living herring and even supporting the creation of the herring's children and their next generation, or we are doing what's quick and easy, which is catching the fish, cutting them open, getting the eggs and throwing them overboard, um, which has damaged herring populations um, considerably. Uh, so the, the health cigar keystone species to me and um kind of to your point of like, you know, we're always getting down on ourselves as humans. We're always, and that's sort of a a, a relic of a, an old tradition of, you know, sinning and, you know, feeling like we're, we're uh, always need to repent for our own existence, you know, but it, it's, it really lives through our culture, this idea that we are just this, this stain on the earth. And I really feel that this is not true. I really feel like you said, and elders have told me this in ways that make sense to me. They say, Lila, one elder, uh, Leroy comes last, he's from Fort Peck, Montana. He said, look around you. We're out on the, on the plains, it's about twilight. He says, see, I see everything, you see that rock? You see everything? He said, every star, every blade of grass has a purpose. And I thought, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Every rock has a purpose. Every, every deer has a purpose. And then he looked me in the eyes and he said, and every human has a purpose. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, that makes so much sense. Why would everything be here for a reason except us? That does not make sense. Um, and, you know, we have these interesting brains that I think, and these opposable thumbs that I think are here to be in service to our animal relatives, to our plant relatives, and in many places around the world, you see this time and time and time and time again. Indigenous cultures say, we have been given a divine assignment by the creator to protect this valley, this river basin, this desert, this tundra. This is where we were put by the creator 
to serve. And I love that, this idea of a divine assignment. You know, it's just, I see it in so many papers, so many different elders say it. And if we remember that, and that's what the Yoruba say, they say the word for human being is chosen one, not because humans are so great and they're above, but because they were chosen to serve the earth. They were chosen to be one of the stewards and to in turn be stewarded by the earth. And um, so it's it's very interesting point you make, and I think it's very important. Yeah, that idea of of a divine assignment or service, it reminds me when I first read Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, and she gives the example of sweetgrass, where it's like, and it was, this was the first time I'd heard of this concept, and I studied ecology and worked on farms. No one had ever told me, hey, certain plants grow stronger, better with human intervention, with human tending, and guess what? If they're not tended to, they will wither and die. And so again, this idea of like, leave everything alone, nature will come back. Yes, to an extent, but that's ignoring, I think, this critical point of like, also when we are of service and when we're like, wow, that sweet grass needs me or like my community needs me, but it's my community beyond my human community. It's my earthly, natural community also need me. That is for me such an antidote to a lot of the toxicity that's, that's set in in our culture, both psychologically and physically into our bodies. Um, and you also spoke in your presentation, we're, we're talking about indirectly, right, to the, this word of reciprocity. Um, and this idea of like how by when we feed ourselves as human beings, because we've got to eat, right? Like when we feed ourselves, how do we feed others? Like, and what does it mean to make sure that other animals are fed by our own eating? And I think that when you look at kind of modern agriculture and even some of the organic regen kind of agri agriculture initiatives, it's like, yeah, have some pollinator rows, but they want the pollinator rows there so that the crops are more fertilized for human use. And I, I, I still don't really hear in the narrative, um, and this is the reason why this podcast is like, I'm tired of just doing things for humans, for the human species. Like we're in our own like mirror, hole of mirrors echo chamber. Like, what does it mean? And, and I'm sure you have examples of this. And you gave one with the kelp forest to create an ecosystem where you're actively thinking, okay, I'm feeding other animals. I'm not just feeding myself or my human community. Well, I think that the words food and feed are words that are so misleading and rob us of the importance of reciprocity. And here's why. Food is this noun, Right. But if you research indigenous words for food, it's always a verb-based word. It's like for us, it's eon. But eon is the um, the root of that word, which is to eat, to 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 eat. And chi and the ch part is the energy. So eon, the the that energy which is eaten. But the reason they're verbs is because food is this process. It's not a noun. It's it's a it's a really complex, gorgeous, sacred process by which certain life forms give their life so that another being may live. And that is whew, amazing, you know. I mean, think of a corn plant. It grows and then it gives its body to us. And that is so generous. I don't know about you, Alexa, but it, I'm, it would be hard for me to say, you know, Alexa, I'm going to die for you right now. I'm going to give you my life right now so that you can live, so that you can keep doing your work, your podcasts, your, your research, all the important things. But that's what our animal and plant relatives do for us every day. They give themselves to us. And when you understand it from that lens, instead of just food, right, which is this very D- the secular, denatured, de um, de de miracled <laughs> word that reduces this incredible gift to a noun that you can just throw to your kid in the back seat so that they can stay alive another day. You know, it's like it's 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 the gift of life to give life. So when we see that, then it's like oh, when we see that. Animals and plants are equal to us. You know, we have this, we've, we've challenged white supremacy, right? We've, we've, we've realized, okay, maybe that's not right. <laughs> we've challenged male supremacy. Like, okay, maybe men are not superior to women. 
And, but we have yet to challenge in Western society human supremacy, this idea that humans are above and superior to other life forms and that other life forms are here essentially to serve us. That is so off, off base. It's not, it's very inaccurate. <laughs> We're living an illusion if we believe that because in reality, we are here in interdependence and we are equal. So when a cow gives his life to you, or her life to you, you treat it with the same gravity as if Alexa just slit her own throat and gave her body to me. That's a big deal, right? We would be like, holy crap, Alexa just did that. Whew, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that her death is not in vain. Um, or I'm going to make sure that her children get like tenfold back because she just gave me her life, you know? And so when we think of the cows that way, I'm like, wow, this is a sacred community or the buffalo or the deer or the corn or the beans or anything. These are all sentient beings. They're giving their lives to us. Sorry, one second. <laughs> it's actually, no, it's actually a great po- moment no, for your dog to be like, damn right, I'm a sentient no, being. <laughs> Mr. Boo, no. Mr. Boo wants to be known as a sentient being. He's like, yes, I, I am here. I have feelings. No, I know. He I when I first saw him and I was like, "Whoa. Yeah. You're actually an yeah. angel in a dog body." I was like, "Oh, I'm sorry. I've been treating you like a dog this whole time. I'm so <laughs> sorry." And he was like, "Yeah, I like get with the times." And I'm like, "Oh, so so similarly, I think that you know, uh when we when we really see all of the animals and plants in that in, with that magnitude, we then want to give back." And we have so much thanks and gratitude for it. And we see that this importance of feeding our food, you know, it is so important, not just to feed them, like you said, so as an ecosystem service, they can give it back, but to feed them in true gratitude, in true appreciation and say, thank you, dear. And if you look at the grass burning uh, example of the, the buffalo habitat, that's how we fed the buffalo. We would burn and we would maintain the grasslands. And the buffalo are, in native culture, the symbol of generosity, the symbol of abundance, the symbol of 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 love to give your body to the humans. Like they would do that for us all the time. And so we had to do that in return. It was not just a gesture of, oh, let me burn this so that I can get more buffalo. It was like, let me give this gift, this offering to the buffalo for all that they have given to our people. Do you think, I mean, first of all, just everything you shared is so powerful. And I I have been guilty recently of eating, really, without really pausing to understand what's on my plate. And I think, you know what I mean? Me too, even with all this, uh, you know, I, I do it too. <laughs> yeah, but but it's but it's a really important intention. And, and Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese monk, has some beautiful intentions that I try to always speak out before eating. Um, but what strikes me as so challenging is that, um, so this idea that like, I, I often feel like nature is the, is this, like the largest enslaved being that we don't really talk about. Like, as you said, we talk about slavery of children and people of color and women. And and yet we're, and we think we've gone so far. And those very people who have been women liberation movement leaders, and they're engaging in other form of slavery of the living world. Like your ecosystem services for us. Like you are my land that I own. And we're going to get to ownership later because that's a big one in this subject about how we farm the land. Um, but so freeing nature from that bind where all of its beings, her beings are, are ours to use. Um, I think that's why the rights of nature is very compelling. That's a, that's a movement that we support. Um, when there's distance between what something really is and how it shows up um, processed and more dead, let's say nothing ever really dies, it transmutes. But let's just say that for means of the conversation, a chicken is slaughtered and killed and then it's on your plate and it's dead in that form. Um, when there's such distance between where the food is grown and how it's grown and then the way it's presented to people around the world, um, how do we even begin to create a society that can get close to those values you just shared? Well, this goes back to how you were saying you felt bad you couldn't um, 
introduce yourself in the traditional way of your uh, Swiss ancestors. Uh, similarly, and I said, don't feel bad about that. That's been systematically taken from your ancestors by the Roman expansion, the, the witch persecutions, etc. Um, similarly, I think we as Americans or, you know, people in this Western world, we have to understand we are being systematically removed from our food. Um, this is by design. You know, the corporations who control food are incredibly powerful and incredible. Well, at the same time, we have so much power to cripple them in one day. But but anyways, um, they're incredibly willing to <laughs> to do some pretty um, atrocious things, um, as we know with Monsanto and, and, and different corporations that I think there's just a few corporations that oversee most of the food production in the world. And so... Um, that doesn't mean we're helpless. That doesn't mean we are powerless to take it back. And in fact, we must take it back from them. Absolutely. And that's what Vandana Shiva talks about. Like we absolutely must reclaim our, our own food production on a community by community basis. Um, if we want to be healthy, if we want to curb global warming or even stop it, if we want to not be slaves to these corporations and if we want to honor the earth, we, we must take it back. So even though these corporations have systematically taken uh, this from us, um, we so we can't just blame ourselves wholesale. We've been tricked, you know. Um, we do have the power to, to get it back. And I think that this goes into, of course, just trying. You know, I talked to a Hopi dryland farmer for my podcast Um my podcast, uh, where he said, you know, you don't have to succeed, but you do have to try. <laughs> he said, just try, just try to grow your own food. Try it, just make, just do whatever you can. And, and through that, um, through that trying, we will learn. And I love in a way how COVID has inspired so much back to the landing. You know, so many people have started their cornfields on the Diné, um, in the Diné res, like we've all like started planting corn again and it's like sweet, you know? And so I think we're going to, as, as so many have prophesized before, when this whole thing collapses, which it's not really an if, but a win, um, we will be, we will be so inspired because we'll be forced to be inspired to create our localized food systems. And, um, I hope that my, you know, my dissertation inspires us to act collectively on regional scales to say, hey, instead of parceling all this stuff out of like, you get a square, I get a square, and then we're all doing different stuff instead of, and, and that prevents us from harnessing the larger forces that are at play in that whole watershed, you know, that instead we band together and say, you know, this is a whole system. We need to treat it like one. And if the more we try to pretend like, parceling it up into 200 acre plots and doing something different, uh, the more we are ignoring the reality that this is a whole system. And the moment we tap into it as a whole system, we will stop fighting against the current and we will work with it. And that's a, that's a key feature of all these food systems that I studied is they all work with the flow of what's going on. Um, I think, uh, you know, conventional American agriculture is, usually so obviously fighting against what's going on. They're, they're importing water from far away. They're bringing fertilizers from like, you know, other side of the world. They're, they're just working so hard and yet they claim to be so efficient. Whereas with the uh, clam gardens, for example, they let the, the moon do the work. They're like, okay, moon, just bring the tide up and then bring it back and we'll just be here to catch it when it comes, you know? Um, and the clams will be happy. And they let the clams do the work. They're like, let's just create a space where the clams like to come, you know, build it and they will come. I thought maybe that would be like an alternative title of my dissertation. <laughs> uh, and, and I think we all have the capacity to do that again. And that's what's so exciting about this research is that, you know, we're, we've, what it does is it proves we've done it in the past and therefore we can do it again. Yeah, let's talk about the human psychology and spirit piece of this because it's not discussed enough in the agriculture movement. And 
many well-meaning initiatives um, are reducing harm, but I don't see many that target the ways that human beings become as they tend the land. And I think at the end of the day, agriculture is, I think it was um, once through a revolution, I never pronounce his name right, um, Mia, not Miyazaki, he's a Japanese director, Fukoa, there we go. Fukoa um, has this phrase where he basically says, the act of farming is the act of creating the human soul, the human spirit. And I'm really struck by when you need to think about the whole web of relations and the whole watershed and everything that's constantly dynamically moving, that's a very different human brain. That is a very different human body and system. Personally, it's one I prefer. It's one that has to be sensitive to the metronome of the land, the, 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 the ticking, the, the beat of a place. And in a way, um, the sensitivity to knowing the seasons and the tides and what's coming in, it's in, you're seeing the land as a dynamic living process versus this contraction that occurred when we started creating monocultures, when we started trimming down these you know, wildly alive poly, polyculture gardens into grow crops. It's, it's, it's also, and I think it's really important for people to know this, like it's a narrowing of the human spirit. It's like everything's contracted, like space is contracted, time is contracted, your nutrition is contracted in a way, um, your ritual and your community process is contracted. And so I want to get on this, I want to get to the subject of how we do this as human beings together. Um, because as you said, and before with air, it's the human protocols that underpin how we farm. And for me, when you when you're playing and you're driving over these massive swaths where everything's in its little square and it's segregated, and it's just that land cannot flow or breathe. And so, how do you think that our society can think differently in terms of ownership, land? cooperative, co-management, commons, all these terms, when it comes to farming? And do you think that we can get to a beautiful agriculture and, and a feeding or, in the verb sense, um, system without those kinds of changes? I was doing this research and I was, you know, I went to Stanford for my undergrad and you know, been very Western educated, even though I'm a Diné woman from birth as, you know, so as I'm doing this research, I started to think of it in that way of like, oh, I got to measure how old are these systems? How big are they? How many are there? Um, what, what do they look like? What are they made of? You know, just kind of measuring everything. And then it dawned on me literally about half a year ago, actually what's way more important than the physical outward appearance of these food systems is the invisible world of the human heart that drives them the 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 whole landscape within the human mind of what is their values what is their principles their tenets their underlying tenets um and then therefore their goals that arise from that value and then it's my my um mentor dr gregory cahete who's written incredible books on, on this subject and more. He said, yeah, Lila, it's like a tree. You know, you see the out, you, what you see of the tree is, you know, you see how tall it is, how many branches it has, but what's really keeping it alive is invisible is its roots, you know, the, and the soil system that it's planted in, you know, that's what's giving it the foundation. Um, and I thought to myself, maybe that's the metaphor, you know, that the outward appearance of a food system is the trunk and the branches and the pine cones, but, but the actual driving force or a major driving force is actually the, 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 the hidden values. So, um, for example, uh, the value of profit maximization, or rather the goal, the goal of profit maximization, which is rooted in the value of scarcity and the value of domination. Um, that is driving our food systems. <laughs> right and when you look at it that way, it's like, oh crap, we are screwed. <laughs> you know, if, if scarcity and domination are driving our food systems as values openly, you know, it's not even hidden. This is what 
the USDA, these are the metrics they judge themselves by. It's like, how successful are our farmers doing? You know, how much money? It's yield versus nutrition. Yeah, yield and also uh, farmer profit. You know, they want to support this economic health of the farmers, which is well intended, but it's not holistic. It's not saying, what if our success is measured by biodiversity? What if our success is measured by not just human health, but the health of all of our animal relatives around us, as if they were equal to us, because they are. Um, And now we're crying because all these animals are going extinct. And it's like, yeah, because your system was by design completely excluding their their well-being. That was not even on the map. It's not even in the bottom line, you know? And so, so anyways, going back to this thing of like, you know, the values. And I think that the values I saw in a lot of these case studies was, uh, well, the principles rather were that uh, animals are equal. That's a big one. They have their own nations. And in the Shumash case, the dolphins, they are people. They, they are people who fell from the rainbow bridge and Mother Earth saved them by turning them into dolphins. So they actually are humans who got transformed into dolphins. So like these creation stories are also encoded with all these teachings. And it's not like the Chumash really thought humans turned into dolphins. It was these stories were designed to teach their children certain ethics, right? And so the, the, that's a big one. Another big one is um, the divine assignment principle, this assumption which is like, we are here by the creator's assignment to take care of this area. Um, Another one is that, you know, uh, the more, the better, you know, diversity was, was uh, a value. And, and so I've seen all these common values and tenants across the board. And now I'm looking at those. And that's actually what Oren Lyons said years ago. And I was like, oh, that's cute, Oren. But now I'm like, no, no, he he hit the nail on the head. He said, value change for survival. Just four words. <laughs> he was like, if you want to survive as a society, your values got to shift. Um, and the last thing I'll say on this note is that, again, you have to have compassion for Western society. How did they get to this place where fear, scarcity, and domination are, as you said, the protocol of their food system and every other system? It's because they were in 2,000 years of open warfare. You know, um, my other mentor who sits on my committee, Dr. Yvette Running Horse Colin, she said to me, you know, the goals were different when the colonizers came here because they were coming from a different place. They're coming from 2,000 years of open warfare, she said. Think about it. And we know now with epigenetics that even though you're not experiencing it, your grandma's experience is still triggering your nervous system. And they have proven that. How crazy is that with mice? And it's just incredible. Um, So here they are. They're coming. And when you see, when you are in a state of warfare for 2,000 years, hoarding, and getting yours and getting just getting to tomorrow is actually it makes sense that that's what they were trying to do you know and so but then they brought it over here and we were like oh no we're good well we're not just going for tomorrow we're going for seven generations down the road and to them that just went straight over their heads they're just like fear 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 gotta get it now oh here's some vulnerable people vulnerable people let me slaughter them and take what they have because that's what happened to my grandparents and it's dog eat dog if you don't do it someone's gonna do it to you that's the sort of system that not only came here in 1492 but still drives our food system today and is being transmuted slowly but surely by people like you people who are like wait this isn't working. <laughs> what do we need to do differently? I think what's so hard also is even those farmers who are overseeing some of the, you know, Midwest and these massive crop belts, they're also living by the skin of their neck and they're also on the verge of being broke. So it truly doesn't serve most people. Um, and on your point about where this system originated, um, you know, when I looked at the history of Europe and this goes back to this commons thing, until about the 10th, 11th century or so across different parts of Europe, 
These were communal owner, ownership structures, which meant that you had to have civics. It meant you had to get along with your neighbors somehow because you had a shared sense of place. And so this notion of privatization, which happened with the enclosures in Europe when land started being artificially delineated and then you put chokeholds on nature's flows because things can't move. Um, and then that led to obviously the role of the woman and then a society lost all its females. But there is a book that I don't know if you've read called Seeing Like a State by James C. Scott. And it is a, a very pretty informative for, for some of the research you're doing. And he speaks about the origin of statehood and how the statehood needed easily commodified crops, hence the grain societies, because they grew above ground. They had predictable harvest. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't hide a tuber underground and stash it away. Um, they needed legibility. They needed simplification. Um, and it was essentially control. And so anything that was wild, deeply complex, diverse, it didn't fit in that state system. Um, forests, gardens, and I think critically human uh, social arrangements. So you see cities were different. Cities were, you know, crazy winding, like imagine the roots of a tree, right? And then they became these like homogenized kind of rows of urban landscapes so that um, what do they call like artillery could go down them or like horse carts and things like that. And so I think looking back to the, you know, going into history, I don't think it's just like a fun intellectual exercise, but if you do talk about systems change when it comes to agriculture and food, we have to understand that there's this statehood aspect that couldn't manage or understand, right, manage or understand what these wildly alive places were. I didn't even know how to see it. And so I'm really excited by things like um, Agrarian Trust in the U.S. or some of these other organizations that are trying to say, okay, let's let's think about the commons and let's think about how we create, yeah, in your presentation, you mentioned like these food sheds. Um, and I'm wondering what places you see are moving away from the model that you just described in this kind of very strict, formal, controlled way and they're like, okay, we're going to try this differently. We're going to try and organize our human minds differently, our human relationships differently to manage this. Um, and maybe that's happening um, right where you are. I mean, well, you mentioned that you were uh, planting corn again and doing this together in a landscape, but I'm curious if you have a lived experience of that. Because for me, it's still an intellectual exercise. I've yet to live in a place where everyone's like, okay, we're going to co-manage this massive landscape together and nothing's going to be mine or yours. It's going to be we're stewarding for the land. No, I appreciate you uh, filling in that gap of my understanding too of just the 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 statehood aspect and and just adding more color to how these systems of of delineation and segregation and privatization happened. Um, well, I I did like I said I went to hang out with the Hopi dryland farmer Akima Kuntiapia, and he uh, he. If you've been to Hopi Res, it's pretty massive and it's very um, unfenced and it's just kind of there. It's a massive desert. And you look at it, you're like, oh, there's not much going on here. Just a few, just a lot of sand, you know, <laughs> and like rocks and mesas. And yes, there's plants, but you can tell they're struggling to exist in this low precipitation environment. And then he says, okay, we're going to go to my fields. So I say, okay, so we go on a dirt road, we go into a watershed. And this watershed has many different fields um, that people have resurrected during COVID because they're like, oh, shoot, maybe we should plant. Um, so Akima takes me to his field and, and I'm like, so, but he doesn't have a piece of paper that's like, this is my it's just inherited. It's just like my family tended this little spot forever and now I'm tending it. And everyone kind of like stakes out their own little spot where they're going to, you know, grow their corn and beans and squash and melons and stuff. Um, but it's positioned in watersheds because the water uh, from every monsoon rain comes down and soaks the field. Um, and this is a little bit of a side note, but it's so fascinating. I must mention it. So the rain comes and they cup the earth a little bit. So it's like a pond type of thing and not a huge pond, but just enough to hold, you know, some couple feet of water. So every monsoon rain, it'll, it'll flood and it'll soak into the soil. And he says, usually you let it just soak for a couple of years before you even plant it. 
And he says, once you do plant it, there's so much water stored in that little spot that it can literally not rain the entire growing season and your plants will grow because it's store, it's created this mini aquifer in the middle of the desert. I mean, like way out there in Arizona, hot and dry. And he, he used his hoe to scrape just two inches of this dry sand off and underneath was this wet, saturated soil, a loamy, sandy soil. And so we just, we just put some beans in there and we knew they were going to grow fine. Um, so, but that was a beautiful watershed because it was co-managed. Like you said, it was, it was like this, the, 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 the boundaries were not the fence line. The boundaries were where the water flowed or not. And people gathered themselves to honor where the water flowed. And he said, follow the water just go where the water goes, you know, and, and plant there. And that's how they create these massive, beautiful, uh, cornfields that just grow. Like, and they're always such a surprise to everyone. Like, how do you get corn to grow out here? And they, they do it very easily. And so that was one cool example. I think, you know, Phoenix, as we know it now, used to be a huge co-managed area with, this massive, gorgeous irrigation system by the Akimel Atom people, which means the river people. So they would take this very sacred river in Phoenix. If you've ever been to Phoenix, it's hot. And the Salt River runs through it. And they would they would create these little, you know, anthropogenic tributary uh, irrigation systems. And it was this flourishing garden. Um, and so... That's another example of a co-managed system. But I think you're right. In today's day and age, that's a huge question that I get a lot that I don't know how to answer, which is how are we going to transition from this parceled world into a holistic watershed co-managed by a community of people? I think we're going to have to do some pilot projects. I think that's the only way to prove it's possible to, to, to literally break down our fences. You'd have to get a bunch of neighbors who are willing to work together, break apart their fences and say, let's, instead of me having a, a, a acre and nine other people having an acre, let's all have 10 acres together. Let's see what happens. And let's learn from the native people. And <laughs> for every acre we have, let's make sure native people get an acre too. Because Again, it's not just about mimicking native stuff. It's about restoring indigenous peoples to their land. Yeah. And I mean, that's where that's where the the values part comes in because things break down because of the messiness of human relations. And so when I look at like a lot of the kind of ag tech or venture capital and all these kinds of funds, it's like, well, how is this intervention shaping how humans work together and understand food? Um, there's this really cool research project that I'm sure you've seen um, looking at all the sea gardens across the Pacific. It's called like the Sea Gardens Collective or something. And they've documented a lot of the stone wares that you described are present across many of the cultures. And what I love in their documentation is that they, for each, uh, they call them innovations, right? And so for each innovation, even though it's like an ancient innovation, they have um, a part on ceremony and stewardship. And for each of those um, interventions in the land, they're like, this was how the people ceremonialized this place together. This was how they stewarded it. Um, and you kind of get this like vast tapestry of different ways that communities have decided. And 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 I, I'm a little bit more, I don't know, unconventional in this way. And I'm like, make up your own rituals as a community. Be like, all right, like... We're not going to appropriate from someone else. We're going to listen to the land and maybe we'll make up our own harvest ritual or our own ways of working as community or working through our, you know, issues with each other. But like that idea of like ceremony and stewardship in a, a land, food or agriculture system, um, I think is really missing. And uh, one of the last questions I'll ask is how do you uh, personally connect with food? and land. Like I ask this to most of the people who come on the podcast. It's like, what are your personal practices? What, what have you learned that can be uh, a sustenance for others in, on their own path? Yeah. And I'm always uh, a little embarrassed by this type of question because I'm such a, I'm such a theorist and not much of a practitioner. <laughs> um, but I am in the process of starting my sheep farm and 
you know, I do have compassion for myself because the reason I don't have connection to land is because it was stolen. You know? And my people were boarding schoolized and missionized and urbanized. And so I have to have compassion for myself too, of like why I'm not connected to the land um, was very systematic. But, uh, you know, what I do know is that, you know, you offer a little bit of your food to the earth before you eat, you know, ideally. Um, I do pray before I eat. Um, because I feel that food is not just physical. It can contain light, uh, just like our bodies can contain light. Their whole meridian system is just one big network of light. And we believe that that network is the spirit um, and that our bodies are designed to hold that light, which is the spirit. So similarly, the food can hold light. The food has water in it, which as we know is sensitive to human intention. Actually, we've seen through various studies that water responds differently on a molecular level to human intention. Um, so my prayer is like, may this food not just nourish me physically, but also nourish me spiritually. Um, may I, may I, may this food be full of spirit. Um, and when, when we cook, you know, we're always taught to cook with a good mind and good thoughts, although I'm not perfect at that. Sometimes I'm in a rush, but, um, whatever you thinking when you cook that goes into the food that people will eat. And so you think very carefully, you think lovingly and, and you, you pray for the people, you know, that you'll be feeding. Um, you know, we, we offer a little bit of cornmeal to the morning, uh, dawn light you know, and, and also the dusk. And so we, we offer this cornmeal uh, morning and, and evening because we're giving it our best. You know, we're giving an offering to the spirits. There's the white corn and the yellow corn. It's, it's the best, one of the most precious things we have. So we give our food, we feed the spirits. Um, and corn pollen in the afternoon and tobacco smoke in the evening. You know, you, you pray four times a day like that to honor, um, you know, uh, the four, the four directions, the four times of day, the four seasons, everything's in four for us. But, um, and so when people ask me to retrieve their culture, I sometimes suggest, you know, maybe get a little piece of what's precious to your people and give it to the dawn. Maybe it's mugwort, maybe it's, um, watermelon, you know, I know watermelon comes from Africa, you know, maybe it's, um, who knows, maybe it's a little bit of acacia leaf from Australia uh, or, or what, whatever it is, but something that's precious to the land of your people and, and offer it in the morning. Um, I also, you know, one time I was with my elder and we were planting beans and I basically um, uprooted this, this um, scarlet globe mallow and I said, oh, I moved this for us, you know? And he was like, well, you didn't need to do that. <laughs> he, he was so fascinating. He, Dr. Larry Emerson, he said, you, you didn't need to kill that plant to make room for the beans, but your spirit is calling you to this plant for a reason. And it turned out that it's one of our main medicine plants. And I used that plant that I took out of the ground to help someone heal from Lyme disease um, later on. And so, you know, this idea that the land and you have a, a, a spiritual connection, but also that it's speaking to you and your spirit is speaking to you. If you're attracted to a plant or if you quote unquote accidentally uproot a plant, you know, to, to be mindful of that. What is it? What is that plant trying to teach you? Um and that was a really big teaching moment for me that when you go out on the land, it's, it sees you, you know, it's not, it's not dead. It, it's, it's alive and it sees you and you can communicate with it. Um, so I think that's just, you know, cursory answer to your question, but some of what comes to mind when you ask that. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to start making offerings like that. I don't, I don't often do that. Um, on the on the plant thing, there's a great book called The Lost Language of Plants by a guy called Stephen um, Booner, where he speaks about resonance and, and the living world. Um, Lila, we've reached the end of our time, so I want to be respectful. Thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom. And I cannot wait for your, your dissertation, your paper to be done. Um, and also to see how you're going to 
bring what you've documented into its aliveness in the world, right? And like how that's going to inform policy and initiatives and things that people can really engage in. So we'll be in touch and um, we can put things like that in the show notes or otherwise, because I know that you're not just thinking about writing something and then it's going to be there, you know, in a corner somewhere. Right? You're going to be singing about it. You're going to be, you're going to be doing it. So I'm really, really excited to see what's going to come from you in that sense. Thank you so much. And if you want to learn more, you know, um, I'm on the Facebook and Instagram. I can't figure out TikTok, although I do have one. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I will get there one day. Um, But anyways, uh, it's all Lila June, you know, Lila June, Facebook, Instagram, and then the YouTube as well. I have uh, youtube.com slash Lila June. have a lot of talks on this topic if you want to learn more. Um, And I can't recommend enough, you know, Forgotten Fires. Uh, republished by MCAT Anderson. Um, check it out. Um, it's a really interesting book to, if you want to learn more too. And thank you so much. You know, um, thank you for holding space and asking these incredible questions. Absolutely. And I hope this is just the beginning of a lifelong alliance between us. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and stay tuned for a fresh Life Worlds episode coming out in two weeks time where we will be rewilding the Earth's landscapes and learning how to reintroduce the vilified, feared, and misunderstood wild creatures back into their balance-keeping roles. I would love to hear from you, and please reach out to me on the website, lifeworld.earth, where you can also find all of the show notes and an awesome open-source library ranging from everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to our email list, and I'll see you back here soon.